Hello and welcome to the Trainer Tools podcast. I'm John Tomlinson. In this episode, I'm going to be speaking to Paul Levy about his approach to breaking collusion in the training room and driving for excellence and lasting change. It makes a lot more sense when he explains it. I'm here with Paul Levy. Hi, Paul. How are you? Hi, good. Now, I don't know what you're going to talk to us about today. Um, So do you want to explain that? Yeah, I think what I wanted to share was something I think all people working in learning and development will have experienced. Um, and, And it addresses a frustration that I think both clients and facilitators, trainers could actually overcome if they took this on board. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit and demonstrate a bit something I'm calling the collusion of mediocrity, and the particular technique is breaking collusion. Okay, well, that sounds absolutely fascinating, and I have no idea what it is. So do you want to just talk through the structure of of what you're going to talk about? Yeah, well, I think it will begin with my own midlife crisis, and then having shared this with a bunch of other trainers, uh, a similar kind of, I call it midlife crisis, being slightly tongue-in-cheek. Um, And it's where a trainer is sitting at the end of the day uh, with a bunch of feedback sheets, which are quite often in the industry known as happy sheets, often administered um, after some motivating exercise at the end of the day. Um, And what they often find is there's a whole load of positive feedback from almost everybody. But what the intuition of the trainer is, is that the people in the room haven't really developed themselves in any significant way or taken any real risks or moved their behavior forward. And that can get confirmed when you bump into some of those people a year later and discover they haven't used any of the training at all. And and I've kind of got an idea about why that is and what you can do about it. Well, I can certainly empathize with all of that, partly part the midlife crisis bit. I'm quite happy to empathize on that part. We can bond, we can bond over that, (laughs) but also, um, I've again sat at the end of the day and thought, yeah, this isn't really very helpful. It just feels like a tick box exercise. Yeah, I think it comes down to, I mean, something's been called the comfort zone. And and sometimes the almost, it feels a bit like a conflict of interest that the trainer is sometimes wanting to do a good job, but also, you know, not be thrown out. But they might have to risk being thrown out because they're going to have to take those learners into the zone of discomfort, where for periods of time, they may actually be spitting at the trainer or the developer because they're actually taking them where they really need to go rather than as i call it colluding with mediocrity so how are you going to um how are you going to structure the next 15 20 minutes well the the collusion that i've kind of been writing about for quite a few years is it's quite a challenging model and it's got four levels so i thought i could run you through four the four levels with examples and then end with how do you actually collusion break Um, So what I'm talking about right from the start is the collusion of mediocrity is where in the room there's an almost unspoken agreement that the people in the room are not going to be challenged particularly. We're not going to go into the zone of discomfort. And the result of that usually is everyone breathes a sigh of relief and praises the trainer at the end of the day. Okay, I absolutely love the phrase collusion of mediocrity. I think that's a brilliant phrase. Yeah. So you're going to take us through these four steps and then at the end um, conclude. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And I... And you're over in Spain, I believe, and I'm over here in Brighton. And um, 
perhaps one of the places to start is why you know british food is kind of vilified uh, around the world compared to you know a lot of other food i'm not talking that all that food is bad but but one of the suggestions is that we often in in our country have a culture of what we call non-complaining you know don't spoil the meal when people are out the waiter comes over in the uk and tends to say is everything okay seeking a yes whereas i've noticed in europe and over in the us they tend to um, ask how is the meal giving you an opportunity to say well it's okay or it isn't um, and the problem of, of you know, not actually calling things by their real name and not risking the uncomfortable conversation is that then people can't learn. And as a result of that, you end up with mediocrity. The deal is a kind of deal with the devil. To be in the comfort zone, everything is fine, everything is safe, everything is easy. But what we miss is the real potential because that sits in the zone of discomfort. And so level one of my collusion model, the collusion of mediocrity, is where we actually have what I call fake niceness. Um, and so people are in a room. We've got um, the notion of never really taking people and people not taking risks and the trainer not being the representative through their processes of the places where people fear to go don't necessarily want to go, but they absolutely in terms of realizing their potential and learning, they're the places they need to go. So can you give us an example of what that might look like? Yeah, so I mean, I, I mean, part of my midlife crisis was running years back some presentation skills courses in a venue in Brighton called Comedia. It was a lovely theatre-based venue. I know that, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've so, been there, yeah. yeah so I've seen we, comedy, comedy shows there, I think. So, so where you saw the comedy shows, we would have people, and they were up for this, they said, you know, standing up on the stage where the comedians would be performing that night, you know, under lights, uh, learning to present. Um, when we set at the beginning, what are your aims? Quite a few people said what their aims would be, would be to be able to speak confidently with a script up on the stage. What I became very aware of is several of those people had already done that in their lives before. And they were sort of faking. What they really didn't want to do was learn how to stand on the stage and improvise without a script. And the risk that I would take as a trainer for them to actually, at the end of the day, go, that was a bloody difficult but useful day, uh, would be to actually challenge them and call them on the fake goal that they set, the fake nice goal, where they were hoping just to repeat learning um, and actually take them into the zone of discomfort. And I often did that uh, later in my training life. And what you'd find is people would write bad feedback about you in the short term, but often contact you later and go, I just want to let you know, I thought that was a really difficult workshop and I wrote bad things on the day, but this has changed my life. Uh, the risk for the trainer, therefore, is that they don't get such nice happy sheets. They get unhappy sheets, but the unhappiness is a sign that real honesty is taking place and real learning is happening. But the trainer has to risk it by breaking collusion level one, which I call fake niceness. And it does involve having a role of sometimes naming that part of someone's learning journey up ahead that they fear to name for themselves. So how do you do that? How do you break that collusion? So, I mean, one of the easiest ways has been to actually repeat exactly what we're doing now, to introduce the notion of the collusion of mediocrity at the start. People often love that. They recognize it. And then it can become a reference point throughout the training. So we can already get people then saying as part of the kind of ground rules, please say if you think anyone's collusion breaking. The other, the other bits that you have to do is just act on your intuitions. I think what happens is trainers, when they're really doing this, start to tune into the group. And, and skilled trainers, that we're not here to deliberately upset people for its own sake. The, the method here is to help people learn. And we're not looking for people to break down for its own sake. But kind of breakdown may happen where people have to take a few steps back. So at different times during the day, the, the, the 
trainer has to check in, do an honesty check with the people in the room, has to be able to refer to the idea there might be collusion in the room, and occasionally has to call people on whether they are, you know, playing a little bit of a fake game here. Now, everybody still has to have the right to say, I don't want to go further. This is as far as I feel comfortable to go. But at least you've named it. Right, yeah, it will give you that kind of non-emotional objective language so you can describe it. Yeah, so in the presentation skills course, that was about people going into, and so many people going into the off-script improvisational place of discomfort. They, the joke was, you know, in the end when we did that, several of those people ended up signing up on the uh, stand-up comedy course at Comedia, and they really slayed their ghosts of presentation that way. I didn't know they did a stand-up comedy course there. That's yeah, interesting. Yeah. No, it's, it's a big thing. And, of course, that is the real zone of discomfort, isn't it? Doing it for real. God, yeah, yeah. That's one of my worst nightmares, that idea. Yeah. So that's the collusion of niceness, and that's the lowest level yeah, of your model, yeah. your four-step model. Yeah, so for level one is calling things by their real name. So also in development, if you're a consultant... Again, we've got this kind of almost conflict of interest that sometimes senior managers will get you in to facilitate an away day where they're saying, look, we want to come up with a strategy. Um, and what they're actually hoping you're going to do is collude with their mediocrity, whereas what you might be noticing as the very conscious facilitator in the room is what's, say, causing problems in the business is the fact that the senior management team are being dysfunctional. Um, it could be they're not listening to each other. It could actually be that they're setting their own goals too low, and you need to name that. Um, and that's going to make you not the most popular person if you start calling people on, again, what I call their mediocrity. Where mediocrity is simply somewhere less that you define you could be as an individual. Um, and, and so it works as much in consultancy as it works in facilitation. I call breaking collusion level one, calling something by its real name. A kind of exorcism, really. A mediocrity is kind of a charged term, isn't it? It does apply yeah. criticism. So you, you must get some kind of pushback and negative response to that. It's a bit, it's a, it's a bit of a shit stirry term, but I, I think my belief is there's so much collusion going on that it's good to provoke. And 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 actually, I found most people that you know they'll challenge that phrase and say, "Well, what do you mean by mediocrity?" And all I mean by it, and this kind of rescues it a little bit, is mediocrity is a state that is less and potential and it can only be defined honestly by the people in that situation so i'm not telling people they're mediocre they're telling themselves when they're honest okay so it sits between um any less than potential and presumably better than crap yeah and if you're a trainer and a bunch of people have booked you say for a stress management course because everyone's stressed for example you know it's almost isn't it a moral duty to help those people learn as much as possible uh, rather than play it safe yeah I would agree. You do, I mean, like you say, you do end up with that kind of uh, conflict of interests in the sense that, you know, shooting the messenger, being the person who, who is shit-stirring, to use your phrase, yeah. is the person who isn't necessarily going to get the best feedback. Yeah, and I think what you have to do... Is Although get, I think that's sorry. a fault, I do think, yeah. sorry, I was going to say, I think, that, I think that's a fault of the happy sheet system. Yeah. I think the happy sheet system is essentially flawed. Yeah, so I've abandoned happy sheets and we just have feedback ongoing. Once you've broken a collusion, it can come in whenever it needs to come in. Some people need to write to you two weeks later and go, I'm still not sure I like this stuff. And someone bumps into you a year later and just they want to let you know it's really transformed. The problem with happy sheets is that they tend to be collusive. Yeah, no, they absolutely do. I completely agree with you. I haven't quite worked out what the alternative is yet, yeah. but I've, I've definitely got this nagging doubt that happy sheets hold us back. Yeah. So what the trainer does is they sort of probably abandon that and go for authentic conversation throughout the process. They make sure they get agreement from the person that's um, booking them in the first place that this really can be a non-collusive sort of day. You might introduce the concept. And then throughout the day, you use a bunch of 
techniques that I think are just part of good practice. You check in with people, you challenge people, you check assumptions, you revisit the goals and see that they still make sense. Um, and you don't try and, um, I, I call it facipulate the day, manipulative facilitation, where you try and end on an artificial high just to get the happy sheets, you know, with higher scores. You, you like inventing words and phrases, don't you? Oh, God, yeah, I really do. And I yeah. think it's been part of the collusion-breaking stuff was was my realising that there's a thin line between bullshit and new language, but without new language, we just keep re- recycling the same old stuff. I think it's worth the risk. I yeah. think it's worth the worth the risk of it being bullshit because inventing yeah. new language is such fun. Yeah, glad to hear that. I invented the word crapophobic, which was uh, a fear of being crap. That's well, my favourite one. And I think crapophobic is a brilliant collusion-breaking term. If you introduce that in a workshop and ask, is anyone here being crapophobic and a few hands went up, we're, we're already getting into that lovely zone of discomfort where we can talk for real. Yeah, I must use it in the training course. I haven't done that yet. Yeah. What? Um, so that's level one. So if we yeah. build on that, where, where will we go next? Where's level two? What's so this might, about? It might sound a bit hopeless, but um, level two is that even when you've started to call something by its real name, so somebody may actually start to set some goals about this is where I really need to be. I really need to be learning to stand on a stage without a script. Or it could be that the company goes, look, we are a terrible environmental performer and we really need to get this sorted out. Level two is simply um, what I call you then dilute it and then rename the diluted version as transformation. So that's when the company that you know has admitted it needs to do a transformational environmental program just puts a few recycling bins out and posters up, and but you know tells the world it's a major success story, even as they're say the biggest river polluter in the area. Um, similarly, you know diluters are the people who say they need to give up smoking and just buy the video about it. It's the the people who dumb down what the change ought to be and then try and get everyone to collude. And so that often happens on training and development where somebody will say what their aim is, only hit a very small part of it, and everyone will say they did amazingly well. Now, that's fine if they genuinely are going as far as they can. But if we're all colluding often, it's simply that someone yet again has pulled back from the threshold of real change, sometimes because they're frightened, um, and sometimes because they're lazy, and sometimes because you know they just don't want to go into the zone of discomfort for various reasons. There can be all kinds of agendas around it. So level two is when the thing gets diluted. And again, there's an opportunity for the facilitator, the trainer, and everybody in the room to collude around doing 10% of what the 100% could have been. So level one, we've named it. Level two, as we start going into action, we before we do, we dilute it down and pretend that 10% is excellent. Right. I mean, this is extremely common, isn't it? Whereby you have that interesting conversation, you feel you've made a breakthrough, and then nothing really happens. Yeah. Uh, I suppose as a, as a trainer as well, we have to be quite careful that we distinguish between somebody actually making a genuine effort and moving forward, but yeah. still falling short, and somebody shying away from the, the challenge that they'd ri- otherwise written, uh, signed up for. Yeah, and the aim, the aim isn't to clumsily curse people or bully them. The aim is simply to try always to get that authentic naming in level one so that we can really make sure that level two doesn't happen. Of course, what you can do is you can do a bit like level one, checking in with people's assumptions, checking in with third-party opinions that is this really as good as we can be. Um, you can just try and encourage you know, that we don't dilute as much as possible. Sometimes the trainer is simply going to have to name it, though. Again, we are capable of more than we're actually saying. Or I call it anchoring as a technique, that if you can get real goals 
say at nine o'clock in the morning and you notice diluting has happened by lunchtime, if you can pull out the flip chart or point to where everyone's goals were, you become the anchor, you become the kind of, yeah, you, you whistle blow the fact that we've started to dilute. Again, can you give any sort of example? Yes, I've got, a, I, I would say, I mean, the one I mentioned around environment, because I was particularly a, a, around that, that particular one, is that that we ran a workshop and in we did break the collusion level one there was suddenly some really interesting data around but when we actually got to what is achievable these the diluting things that were going on was this is going to take far longer than it could so they were trying to stretch the deadline to slow it down Um, somebody else was trying to say uh, we need other people in the room Um, and actually the people in the room were the real decision makers and could have just enacted it straight away and the third one was that the original stretch goals um, were not so stretchy by lunchtime and I questioned why why are you now aiming for 60% when this morning you said that 100% was where you needed to be and I just challenged it and questioned it. Okay so level one is about really calling things as they are being quite clear about what we want yeah. and then level two is about fighting the inevitable dilution yeah. the ride, riding, riding back lowering expectations and just ensuring that action matches the initial rhetoric yeah so where do we go next what's level three well interestingly to i'm bringing you a slap, slap up, bang up to date in this model what i'm going to say is level three quite often you'll see me also writing as level two because i think these two flip around a bit but level three i call fake revelation um, and sometimes what happens is you you do fake revelation and then you dilute, but sometimes the other way around. Fake revelation is when you name it and then you park it instead of acting on it. And you pretend that the naming of it was so powerful and amazing that that was the transformation. Um, and so this is when, you know, it, was, it used to be in the comedy show Yes Minister where I think it was Sir Humphrey, the, the civil servant, that used to say, if you want to stop a minister doing anything, what you need to do is agree with whatever they propose and then try and commission a five-year university feasibility study because by the time it's reported, the uh, minister will have gone, you know, someone will have replaced them. So fake revelation is where you absolutely name something truthfully and you haven't diluted it at all. It's absolutely clear clear the actions are clear but what that happens is that all ends up on flip charts that all ends up in written down action plans or reports and but but the action doesn't get actioned Um, so it's a kind of fake revelation because you've revealed it it can be extremely powerful you can walk away with people saying they've learned all sorts of stuff but a bit like I was saying with my midlife crisis uh, back on Monday morning and certainly six months later little or no action has taken been taken and when diluting happens what happens is a few token actions have uh, happened um, but what has actually happened is um, it's all been relabeled up as look at the amazing stuff we did but actually we've hardly done anything at all okay so the difference between this and two is that the the ambition at least espoused ambition is still there yeah but nothing's actually happening no, and so I realised, going back into midlife crisis again, but it was, I could walk away having facilitated an away day where we broke collusion. By the end of the day, that team, that group, absolutely had a clear diagnosis of where they were, an absolutely clear shared conversation around what they felt needed to be done. Uncomfortable conversations had happened. They may have even commissioned some research. They had data to back up what they needed to do, but something kicks in to actually stop the action. It can get diluted over time or it gets parked in, you know, we need to think about it more. We need to talk about it more. We need to get someone else's view on this. And six months later, they haven't quite done it. 
and it's your friend who again might be um, a perennial smoker an internet addict or a gambling addict who says look i know i should give this up it's terrible it's killing me and you know that couldn't be more true um and four months later they're still smoking okay have you got any kind of example of where this has happened on your courses so I, I think particularly around that one, and you know, this is also the problem sometimes of what I call one hit learning and development. So, and I've made sure that, you know, I try not to do that now, which is where you're in and you've piloted a group of people towards an action plan. So, uh, and actually, you know, at the presentation skills one, if we go back to that, there's a bunch of people saying, right, I really know what I need to do now. I absolutely have to practice being an off-the-cuff speaker. I've got to do it within the next couple of months or this course is going to fade away. Um, and they say it and to, because we've not then actually anchored that in action, and that's the solution to this level, which is you actually have to get commitment to it. Um, and that commitment has got to, in classic project management terms, have who's going to hold you to account for it? When are you going to have it done by? You know, what's going to happen if you don't do it? Um, and ensuring it doesn't get diluted. What's the real goals here? What are the visions? You know, when are you going to reflect on this? Um, and so what happens is everybody writes amazing feedback sheets. So that was the best day I've ever had. That was a transformational day of presentation skills. We practiced it. We've done it in the learning environment back at Monday morning, you know, and then certainly when I've done follow-up feedback three months later, discovered that none of them are any better as presenters. This is a bit like my Gerald Rat at the moment in a way, but it was earlier on in my career when I realized I was getting amazing feedback, but actually it was not, it wasn't surviving beyond those feedback sheets. It was people liking you. They like you. People uh, liking the day. Yeah, they, uh, they like you, but also, I mean, the mischievous ones are absolutely going through the ritual of saying, if I name this as transformation, then I won't actually have to act on it. The less mischievous ones actually go away with good intention, but without it being backed up and supported with, you know, con you know it's known in learning, you need to have proper follow-up. Uh, what happens is it just starts to, you know, um, die literally on Monday morning. Okay, I think I understand better the difference between those stages and why you put them into this order. Yeah. Because as I understand it, getting from, if you like, zero to one is actually calling things as they are, naming them, being very clear and quite courageous yeah. in recognizing. Turning that into stage two is about making sure the, the, the actions you aspire to achieve match that rhetoric. Yeah. And action three is actually making sure those actions happen. Yeah. And quite often in a collusion of mediocrity, the only person in the room who's calling those is the facilitator or trainer. And so they can become a bit like the Grim Reaper or the Exorcist. Um, I have a question about how well this can go down or how badly this could go down, but I'm going to wait until after yeah. done level four. Sure. Which I am now eagerly anticipating. Yeah. Well, before I get even more fatalistic on level four, I mean, I did mention also the thing about collusion that, that strikes me is that what we're talking here at the moment is all the kind of suppressed darkness, but it's not only about that. It's also about all the positivity that when people collude, they don't dare to dream what they're capable of. They don't tend to scream with delight. Everything's kept at a kind of safe minimum. So we also don't actually dream the very best that we can be. So it sounds like it, it releases all the suppressed kind of, you know, problems that we've got that we have, we're not working on and the things we're not saying, but equally, and particularly I'd say in kind of Western culture and some countries, it, it's more, pronounced than others is we don't dare to be brilliant let alone don't dare to be truly naming what's not working as well and then when you get to level four level four i call reverting and fading and can i just ask you can yeah. i just ask you on what you just said yeah, yeah. why do you think that is what what do you think stopping us having that courage to be brilliant aspire to greatness or be more ambitious 
You know, I, I I don't know the answer to this other than I had lots and lots of stories told to me in some of these workshops of, I mean, dare I say, a British or an English way of being brought up, where people's parents brought them up to, here were some of the terms, you know, don't blow your own trumpet, don't show off, uh, and, and parents that try to lower their children's expectations in what they thought was a hard world so they didn't get disappointed. Um, and then various people who, you know, when they did dare to dream, found themselves in collusions of mediocrity. Um, and then they get slapped down by cultures saying, you know, it's not befitting behavior to be shaking your fist with joy. You know, we don't do that around here. So I think hierarchies norm collusion because, you know, hierarchies and repetitive um, organizations that are trying to standardize processes don't want maverick behavior. They don't want too much individuality. And in professional cultures, you know, laughter and tears and joy are seen as things you do at the party. You know, when you socialize, they're not part of professional processes. And it means, therefore, we suppress most of our humanity. I mean, you, you appear to be suggesting that it's kind of culturally embedded in British culture. But I would suggest that it's more common than that. I mean, certainly in American culture where people are more encouraged to be more believe in themselves and strive for greatness, I would say that the same things that you're calling out now still exist. I mean, it was always... And it's still, certainly yeah. a very hierarchical yeah. organi organizations in the US are still very hierarchical. Yeah. I think it's always dang dangerous to be, you know, try and generalize here. But I always jokingly talk about the fact that, uh, you know, when you go to the US... Um, and you're in restaurants, one of the things that you can do is people send food back all the time and people would suggest that service is better. But over in the US, they've got programs like the Jerry Springer Show where somebody will announce live on telly to a studio audience that their wife uh, or no, will discover that their wife was actually a guy, you know, and they didn't know for 20 years. And it seems that, you know, it, it, at least at a general level, there's more collusion within family life in the US, uh, but far less collusion in business life. If you, as an English person, sit um, and see an Italian family in London at a table, to a lot of English people, it looks like they're having a huge argument, similar with Spanish families. And they're not. They're just deciding who's having tea and coffee. It seems that in a lot of those families, there's not much collusion in family life. And yet, what I've heard, particularly in education, and I discovered this in Slovenia, where I was giving a, a guest talk, uh, to some students and after my 40 minutes I asked are there any questions there were no questions at all and so I thought oh this has been a disastrous talk and then afterwards I went up to the, the professor that was hosting me and said no one asked any questions and he said they loved your talk and a few were milling around in the corner and then they asked me the questions over coffee because apparently in that culture there's an implied criticism that the lecturer hasn't covered all the material um, if you ask questions so there's this sort of suppression going on in education, just in, in Britain, I think we've got collusion at most levels. I think it, partly it's endemic in family life. It's certainly there in our restaurants. People don't dare to complain. I mean, it's there are a lot of people that have travelled now. It's not like that, but we seem to have have quite a lot of collusion in organisational, personal, and family life. Yeah, I, I think it's more common than just the British culture. Is what I was. Yeah. Um, it was the point I was making. Yeah. I think I've seen what you're what you're describing. I, I recognise from many different cultures that I've worked in. Yeah, I think it manifests differently in different cultures. That's what I'm saying. But it, but you will find collusion in one form or another in parts of the human condition, wherever it is. I think there's something sort of people recognise that kind of daring to dream, daring to aspire for greatness, and being vocal about that as quite a naive and unrealistic thing, which. Yeah. I think business culture in general shies away from that. It's very much about logic, achievability, objectives, goals, measurability. Yeah. 
and everything we're talking about is none of those things. Yeah, and, and I'm certainly not an insane, um, you know, advocate of excellence all the time. And what I'm suggesting is there will be very good reasons at certain times in people's lives where they don't want to go somewhere. But it can be much more powerful in organisational life to name that honestly and say we've decided to stay at level one. Uh, you know, we're not going to talk about that, and the, the, but we know it's there, and these are the reasons why. And I've got a general rule of what I call collusion breaking, which is if the damage done in the short term is going to be greater than the benefit gained, then be conscious, but you may choose to stay colluding in, in terms of, say, your five-year-old son or daughter shows you their uh, first ever painting. You're not necessarily going to say, well, that was a load of old crap. Don't be an artist. You know, there's something about the human condition that we strive and that we are mediocre. And it, you can even say it's beautiful as you see a, a child trying to climb a little climbing frame and struggling a little bit. We, we're here to learn. But there can be so much collusion that when we don't actually name any of it, it's like a kind of sludge that we can't get through. So some conscious collusion is perfectly acceptable. I think when it and, and it's skillful and, and skillful and important, but but that's a very different form then of colluding, uh, because it's skillful and conscious to all this kind of subconscious suppressed stuff that I'm talking about. Okay, well I interrupted you before. You were going on to yeah. talk about level four. Yeah, so level four is oh god, it's reverting and fading. It's that we actually do name it, and it's not diluted, and it's not parked in reports and you know naming it and stuff. And we do actually anchor it in real objectives and deadlines, and people commit and so on. But you know, after a while, we pick up those cigarettes and start smoking again. After a while, that big change program reverts and fades back to its original state. And the statistics aren't good around that. You know, there's a load of evidence around about how people's learning states tend to revert to original state and how I think it was a regular A.T. Kearney uh, study in the U.S. that 70 percent of change programs tended to not reach their objectives and often reverted back to original state. So, the, you know, the record's not good. Reverting is when the thing goes back to the way it was over time helped by diluting and fading is probably similar it's where the the monday morning buzz by the friday afternoon you know that buzz has faded away and people have gone you know here we are again so how's how's that avoided and so i'm 48 and i think it's almost impossible to avoid it um it's certainly as a as a change agent you're not working in there you're not supposed to be working in there you have to leave organizations to their, their own state and quite often that state is collusive. So any small part of it that's trying to bring about change will tend to revert and fade back to the way it was. It tends to succeed better if you've contracted the potential really clearly at the beginning. So if we've got senior managers going, I'm really up for this. I know what we mean. So you've broken at level one and there's already pre-given resources and permission for where this might go. It's less likely to revert and fade. But of the obvious ones are anywhere along a line from formal to informal, where at the informal level, it's about empowerment. It's about people having space, resources, uh, you know, and, and, and trust and openness. And these are sometimes being called these days conscious businesses. And it's about learning environments that are very, very honest and open. In my view, non-collusive. At the formal end, you have to put consequences in place. You know, if somebody says they'll do something and they don't, and it reverts and fade back, what are the consequences of not doing that? I've heard of one company where what they do is when they do their action planning, they have the traditional project planning chart with the tasks, you know, and the deadlines. And then they have two columns at the end called sign up and sign off. And people sign literally, you know, committing to actions. And those signatures are part of the disciplinary processes of the organization. 
So we're no longer in, as some public sector and private sector organisations have got, where there are no consequences to not replying to emails, no consequences to not showing up at meetings, and in a lot of cases, very, very little consequence to not making good what you said you do. So you have to kind of hold yourself to account. Some in learning and development, that might be about having mentors. It could involve using proper action learning. Um, and it could be having what I call regular collusion breaking sessions where we meet up again like a reunion after the course and we hold each other to account for our actions and we check have they diluted, have they reverted and faded back. And that's when as a trainer, it's brilliant if you can go in a few months later and a few months after and keep trying to bed in the action. So you would actually do that in the training course, you would introduce this model, you would encourage people to come to create these action plans, but then also share them and hold themselves to account. Exactly. And, you know, actions change over time. So in action learning, it's not it's not that you have to do what you said you do because the world might change, but you do have to honestly revisit. So if it's reverted and faded, has it reverted and faded for conscious reasons that you're in control of or because we're back in the collusion of mediocrity again, in which case we have to go back to level one and start naming it. So when you've introduced this model and you've been going through all of this challenging people, etc., have you ever had particularly bad reactions to it? So, I mean, I've, I've been thrown out. And, and what happens now at, at 48 is that a client will phone me up and go, oh, hello, we're, we're interested in having some communications workshops. We know we've got some communications problems here. And what, if I'm an ethical person, what I have to be prepared to do is really dialogue honestly with that, those people who are commissioning me and already start the process of trying to name what really needs to happen and quite often that will frighten them off um, and they'll say oh well, they won't say because they don't get back to you because they've realized you're suggesting we might need to have an uncomfortable conversation in the room and what they were actually saying was we just want to tick off another away day or we want to bung these people on another leadership course or a personal development program to say we've done it and get our investors in people award but what we secretly hope is that they won't actually change very much and i'm not prepared to collude with that so it's involved as a trainer being prepared to walk away from paid work it involves being um, prepared to name it during the contract and walk away then as well. It sounds like I'm being really arsy and difficult. Quite often this can be done very positively and respectfully, particularly if you've got buy into this concept from the start. What about actually in the training room itself when you're introducing these ideas and challenging people in this way? Do you know one of the best examples of it I saw was actually not myself, but a colleague of mine uh, based at Brighton University. And we were doing some work with a security company. And the senior manager was in amongst all his middle managers. And they were on this change management program. And there was a lot of piss taking going on and not doing things seriously between several of them. And uh, the trainer, who I know very well, suddenly got up at 10 o'clock. I mean, this was on a Saturday, got up about 10 o'clock and said, I'm off. And the uh, the senior manager said, what do you mean you're off? He said, I'm taking my ball away. Um, you know, I don't need to be here. I'm away from my family today. We've, I've contracted with you to help you. And he said what the goals were. And you're all not, or several of you are just completely undermining this. I'm off. And he started to walk out the door, picked up his stuff, and he was um, heading off down the car park. And the, the gobsmacked senior manager went, you can't do that. We're paying you for this. And he said, you're not paying me for this. You're paying me to do authentic, proper learning. Anyway, he started to get into his car. There was a quick crisis meeting between all of them. They told the senior manager they didn't really want him there. He didn't need to be part of that learning. He finally got it because he was in a panic because he didn't want the rest of the board to hear what had happened. He went across to the car as it was revving up, apologized, and that course absolutely was transformed in that moment. The guy came back into the room and the learners, absolutely, it was one of the most significant bits of learning they ever did. But he had to be prepared to name it 
and break that collusion. And what kind of advice would you give people listening to this that may be you know, inspired to try and use this model? Because it sounds like something you've got to be fairly careful with. Yeah, I mean, I've, there's quite a lot of stuff. I'm, I'm not a plug for the website, but I've written up a lot about this, about how you do this skillfully. Um, and I think the place to start is before you're even even in the room, is that you really need to have a real conversation with the sponsor. And it has to be really clear that the reason why you're prepared to do the work is because you can do this honestly and authentically. And your role in the room is to be the flag waver of the potential, not the flag waver of the mediocrity. So it's before you're in the room. You have to do all the stuff you do around ground rules, but you have to be careful that the ground rules you set aren't actually embedding a collusion of mediocrity. So yes, we want ground rules of trust and openness, but you have to be careful if you start talking about, you know, no criticism or you call it constructive criticism. Um, I, I personally believe what you need to do is create lots of trust, but have honest conversations. And that will involve people saying uncomfortable things. Um, and I think what you have to do is create a safe space to be dangerous. And you know, that's not easy to do. It just comes with practice and you'll get it wrong sometimes. And that's part of it too. Colluders uh, play it safe because they never want to get it wrong. Okay, thank you for that. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, it's almost like a footnote really. And it was just that I was giving a talk on the collusion of mediocrity a few years back and somebody in the audience put their hand up and you know, did a bit of collusion breaking on me. And this person um, in the audience put their hand up and said to me, uh, but Paul, and they were doing a bit of collusion breaking of their own, um, isn't mediocrity important and vital? Isn't it so part of the human condition that you're sounding a bit relentless? And, and that really made me think. And that is where um, I think learning and development is now. That is where the absolute skill is. The skill of a facilitator is the skill of discernment to really help an organization get to their potential but to make sure that when I mean mediocrity is where we don't just go madly for excellence all the time because it's too dangerous, uncomfortable and difficult, is that that's a conscious decision, that we know what we're doing. And so my footnote is collusion breaking always works when it's conscious and it can be damaging and dangerous when it isn't. OK, well, thanks very much for that, Paul. I think that's been really, really interesting and there's quite a lot to think about and I'm certainly going to read um, your website. Do you want to tell everyone the URL and everything else about yourself? Yeah, I guess um, I, I've been a writer all my life. I've tended to document all of this stuff and written stories about it. So on rationalmadness.wordpress.com, um, which is the place where all my writings are, you'll notice um, on the right-hand side something called the Collusion of Mediocrity ebook, And it's a kind of living document, a diary, where I've written up some of my practice, some of the ideas, some of the techniques, some of the ways of doing it. And it's all open source, and I encourage everyone to, to use that and, and please get in touch with me and add some of your own thoughts and stories to it. And who do you work for, Paul? What's, do you have your own business? Yeah, so I've got a couple of organisations. Um, I run my own company called Cats 3000, which is um, uh, it's a facilitation change management kind of company. I'm also, I've just had a book published called Digital Inferno, and uh, you'll see from the Cats 3000 website, which was rationalmadness.wordpress.com, uh, you'll see a link to the book and a whole load of writing about, which I think is essentially about finally breaking the collusion of mediocrity in the digital world, the world of mobile phones and 
and all of that stuff as well. And finally, um, behind, underneath all of this, for 25 years, I've been a, a research fellow at Brighton University at the Centre for Research and Innovation Management, where I've been trying to uh, get the opportunity, which has been great, to write these thoughts down and collect data to try and support what I've been saying around collusion. So it's not just hot air. There really have been a lot of kind of conversations and interviews, as well as my own practice and experience. Well, thank you very much for that. And all those links can be found on the Trainer Tools website as well, which is www.trainer-tools.com. And thank you very much for your time, Paul. Thanks, John. That was me talking to Paul Levy about the collusion of mediocrity. I hope you found it interesting and thought-provoking. There's more information on the Trainer Tools website about Paul and links to his blog and various other writings. See you next time.